Our sponsors for this episode are the fine folks over at Guadalupe Roastery once again with absolutely excellent coffee, a fantastic mission. These guys really are the real deal. Head on over to GuadalupeRoastery.com, GuadalupeRoastery.com, and be sure to use the promo code POPE, P-O-P-E, at checkout for 10% off your entire order when you scope out a few pounds for yourself and a friend. Once again, that's GuadalupeRoastery.com and the word POPE at checkout. Thank you again to Guadalupe Roastery for sponsoring this episode. Well, hello, friends. This is Matthew Sewell, and you're listening to episode 74 of the Popecast, the only podcast about popes where you'll find non-boring stories about the uh, popes of the Roman Catholic Church and a reminder that all the world's problems have happened plenty of times before. This week's episode is a very special one indeed. Not only is our guest a fellow fan of papal history, but he also happens to be a husband and father, a writer, the Hungarian ambassador to the Holy See, and the Sovereign Military Order of Malta, and a member of one of Europe's oldest and most storied families, uh, the House of Habsburg-Lorenz. So, Edward Habsburg, uh, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you for reaching out. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate the conversation. Um, I know that no history buff probably will miss um, the, the famous last name, but uh, who is, just to start us off, who is, is Edward Habsburg? What's, your, what's kind of your story in a nutshell? Well, uh, I'm, I'm from the Hungarian branch of the Habsburgs. Uh, my father was born in Hungary. Um, if I explain that to you, it will take about 25 minutes, so I will skip it. Um, I am married and have six children. Uh, and I am since six years ambassador of Hungary to the Holy See and the Sovereign Order of Malta, which means I sit in a small, a cute little embassy, um, not in the Vatican. Most people think that our embassies are in the Vatican, but that would be rather crowded but somewhere else in Rome, not too far away from the Porta Pia. And uh, yes, I have a fantastic job, um, but it also implies that sometimes you have to sit several weeks in August in the embassy while Rome is cooking under the heat. So <laughs> that's right now. You don't get to escape to Castle Gandolfo like the Pope. Although I guess he doesn't no, do that much. No, these days, he know. doesn't do that anymore, no. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, good. Yeah, thanks. So um, I know that this question, I mean, you mentioned it already, but this question could be a whole podcast episode in itself or more multiple but can you kind of briefly explain the historical significance of your family line the house of Habsburg, and uh particularly when it comes to you know relations with the church again very broad question but yes very uh, broadly well um there is a joke is the pope catholic and i would say there's a similar joke are the Habsburgs <laughs> catholic um the, the Habsburgs are most definitely catholic uh our family was catholic from the beginning and i think uh, sort of they are one of the pillars of Catholic history in Europe um, because the Habsburg emperors were Catholic, many people were Catholic. And most of all in the 16th century, because the Habsburgs remained Catholic, Austria and the core of the, of the Holy Roman Empire remained Catholic. Um, and therefore, yes, we're very proud to be Catholic. Uh, it, it led to the last emperor of the Habsburg family, being uh, becoming blessed, blessed Emperor Karl. Right. And uh, interestingly enough, we made a poll on our Habsburg WhatsApp group um, <laughs> where we asked uh, mostly the younger family members who their favorite Habsburg and role model is in our family in the history. 
and most of them went for Blessed Carol. So you would expect wow. Francis Joseph, Maria Theresia, one of the shiny, but they most of them went for Blessed Carol. So you see, we still are a Catholic family. Wow, that's incredible. And who knew the Habsburg had a, Habsburgs had a WhatsApp group too. There's a, a fun yes. thing. But, yes, um, we have. That's incredible. Yeah, I love uh, Blessed Carl's story. And is it his grandson is the technically the head of the House of Habsburg now? Yes, Carl is our family head. And the future head of the family, you can find him on Twitter too, is Ferdinand, his son, who is a race driver. And uh, yes, also oh, wow. a Catholic. Yeah, incredible. Well, uh, I, again, maybe we'll we'll circle back around someday to to talk more about the history of the Habsburgs. But to, the topic today, I when I reach out to you, um, I got a little bit more than I bargained for because you happen to be a huge have a huge devotion to Saint Gregory the Great, uh, who's also one of my personal favorites. So today we're going to be talking about Saint Gregory the Great, uh, and I'm just going to kind of let you go and maybe fill in questions here and there, but. Um, yeah, you can just kind of take it away. I know the uh, you give frequently give tours right at the place where he's buried, uh, and some of the places that he lived. But um, yeah, so maybe maybe you could start with how that how that came to pass, and then yeah, we can get into the story. I I read the book about Gregory the Great by a German author while I worked for Bishop Klaus Kung in Austria, and that book impressed me very much. It's it's um, it's a it's a book about his life, which is semi-fictional in some places, incredibly well-researched and well-written. I'm going to mention it at the end of the show for those of you who speak German because it's a fantastic introduction to his life. But I didn't really fully understand him until I came to Rome and began to to uh, search out the places where he lived. And uh, not the place he's buried, that's an unspectacular little altar just beside the sacristy in St. Peter's. But I was mostly impressed by... Uh, a place right in the historic center of Rome that most people probably just walk by and uh, don't realize what it means. And my theory is that if you stand at that place, you can understand the entire history, the time of Gregory the Great, his character, what shaped him. All of this in one spot. Unfortunately, I can't take you on a tour right there, but I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to try to explain it in a way that um, your listeners will will appreciate. So the place I'm talking about is the San Andrea Egregorio, which is a church, and it is exactly halfway between the Colosseum and the Circus Maximus. There is, um, there is a road linking these two, and this church is on the one of the seven hills of Rome called the Celio, and there's a, a steep staircase going up and when you walk up that staircase and you come to the top and you turn around, you have the view that Gregory the Great had when he grew up as a boy. And that view is absolutely incredible because if you stand there, you turn to your right, you see the Colosseum, 250 meters away. You turn to the left, you see the, the lower end of the Circus Maximus. You look in front of you, in front of you is the Palatine, that is... The, the hill where you have all the great castles of the emperors up there, all the palaces of the emperors. You look to your right, you have the aqueduct, um, the Aqua Claudia, which runs by just very close, and it was the last, one of the last functioning ones. And uh, you have to add to that that Gregory the Great's parents were uh, from the... Um, they were from an aristocratic family. He was an Anisian. Uh, his great uncle was Boethius, so an old, very traditional Roman family. Great. 
So on the one side, he grew up with all this beauty and tradition around him. And on the other side, he saw the destruction. Um, in the year 500, about 40 years before uh, Gregory the Great was born, um, Theodoric made one last peace in Rome. Then the population was half a million people in Rome. When Gregory was a young boy, it was 30,000. Between that, you had 25 years of war. The city was taken five times and plundered um, while he was young. When he was seven years old, uh, Benedict, the monk Benedict, the founder of the Benedictines died. So sort of he, he was still aware of him as a boy. Mm -hmm. 549, when he was nine years old, from the house of his parents, he could see the last race in the Circus Maximus. Once, for a last time, it was sort of, it was still used for that. Mm -hmm. And um, so he grew up between a youth of total destruction of all the great symbols. All the palaces were destroyed. The, the Colosseum was a ruin. The aqueduct didn't work anymore. The Circus Maximus was, was gone. And I think this shaped him profoundly. On the one hand, the, the knowledge about the greatness of what Rome was once, and the knowledge Rome is now a provincial town that no one, nobody in Constantinople was interested in anymore. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, the destruction and knowing what it means to grow up in a town that was hungry, where you had floodings, where you had invasions. Incredible, incredible. This, this must have shaped his soul very strongly. So um, as a young man, um, when he was... Um, when he was a young man, he went to the properties of the family in Sicily and learned how to deal with corn and how to deal with property and how to make distribution of goods and all of that. And um, then he came to Rome and um, he became a prefect of the town, which made him incredibly popular in Rome because in all those difficult times, he helped structuring the help for the poor and all of that. So you see, he had a caring heart very carrying out in a very, very difficult time. And um, in two years after he became prefect of Rome, he had a vocation, a strong vocation, and decided to become uh, a monk. He was already friends with the Pope of his time, and he told him, I want to, I want to found a, a monastery in my parents' house. His father had died. His mother immediately um, entered into a female monastery, just beside his son, and he, with about 12 of his friends, founded a monastery in the style of the Benedictines um, inside his house, um, exactly in the place where, where, where the church stands now. And the monastery was dedicated to um, San Andrea, St. Andrew. So, of course, today the church is called San Andrea Egregori, because after that, of course, Gregory the Great became a saint. And, uh, and then he had the happiest four years of his life. Because he was a monk, he could pray, he could study, he could pray, he could study, and everything was wonderful. Outside, of course, history continued, and, um, and, uh, and in 579, the Pope asked him, nay, begged him, to, uh, to do something for him. And, uh, and he said, what? And he said, well, I want you to become my ambassador to the court in Constantinople. And he said, no! <laughs> <laughs> That's the most decadent and elegant place in the world. I'm a monk, don't do this. So he went there with a, with a whole delegation of Romans because they wanted to convince 
the the emperor in Constantinople to help Rome in the time of the invasions. Um, you had the Langobards and you had several other people who who threatened Italy at the time. And um, and he went there and he stayed there for six years. He got to know the wife of the emperor really well and had a very good and intelligent dialogue with her. He got to know many bishops, many friendships. But after six years, he achieved nothing. So he came back, he told the Pope, there it is, thank you very much, I did what I can do, I'm now going to my monastery, don't write, don't call, bye. <laughs> and he went into his monastery in uh, 585, and the Pope after a while said, well, could you at least become one of the deacons of Rome and help the poor, because the situation was bad. And he said, okay, I'll do that. But apart from that, I'm in my monastery. <laughs> and uh, well, and then in 519, January 590, something very dramatic happened. There was a high water in Rome, then there was the plague. And the Pope died in the plague. And uh, uh, Gregory, praying in his cell, heard noise outside. And uh, there was hammering at the door. And the Romans came, dragged him out, and proclaimed him to be the next Pope. And he said, OK, I, I won't accept. And they said, you have to. And then they said, OK, you write to the emperor. I will just be your Pope until the emperor confirms it. And he wrote a second letter to the emperor, which was, don't, I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, don't, I want to go back to my monastery. <laughs> you think those guys would look, you think they would, you think those guys would learn to not object so strongly and just to kind of try to slink away, but no, the last episode no. I did was on Blessed Victor III and he avoided it by going back to Monte Cassino like three different yes. times. Right, right. And, you know, um, uh, he, I think he really thought that he was unworthy, which is, of course, ridiculous. If you look from, from outside, he's a man who knew how to organize. There was nobody protecting Rome. He had been prefect. He knew the, the court in Rome. He was the perfect man for that. Mm -hmm. So he wrote a letter saying, don't make me a pope. And, of course, that letter wasn't even brought to Constantinople. So, and then, um, then... Uh, there was a famous scene of the procession where the plague was really, really bad. People were dying. And then he led a procession from the seven churches of Rome, beginning with a sermon in Santa Sabina. And then people joined the procession from all the churches of Rome. And people were dying and dropping like flies during the procession. And in the end, they ended at the Mausoleum of Hadrian, which today is known as Castel Sant'Angelo, because he saw a parishion of the angel putting his sword away. And he said, that's it. God has listened to your prayers and, uh, and the, the plague is over, and it was over. So, of course, what a start for your pontificate. And, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That story gives me chills, and I've heard it dozens of times at this point, and every time it just gives me chills. It's such a great story. Yes, yes but it really, I mean, it really happened that way. This is not fancy history writing. It really happened. And, um, and then his pontificate began, and he was pope for 14 years. And uh, the recurrent theme in uh, many of his 854 letters that he wrote in that pontificate is, if I could only go back to my little cell in my monastery <laughs> on the Celio, everything was wonderful. Now I sit here and I have to deal with distribution of goods, with donations, with theological fights. I just want to pray. I just want to pray my monastery. So he did incredible things in that time, incredible things in those 14 years. For instance, he managed to convince the Langobards to retrieve from the gates of Rome, they wanted to destroy the city. He made that by, by negotiations, and he was very, very good at that. Um, he, uh, he helped the, to feed the poor very, very strongly. He reformed the monasteries and the priests. 
he gave the uh, what you would call now the tridentine form of the mass more or less its its final shape before the Council of Trent. In his time, the Gregorian chant was more or less put into form. He didn't invent it, um, mm -hmm. I think, but um, in seed form, really, from what I understand, what? right? It was in in seed form. Yes, uh, began, yes. Right? yeah. In 601, he got really very ill. He died in 604. And then he did something wonderful. And uh, he sent uh, the prior of his monastery, Augustine, to England and uh, to, to make a mission of the English. Because when he was a boy, uh, again, here the place comes into, into account. When you stand up there, you can see the Circus Maximus, just beside the Circus Maximus was the old, um, the, the old city harbour of Rome, which was a harbour, but it was also a place for wheeling and dealing. And, and young Gregory went down there very often to see what was going on and to see people from other countries. And it's really, it's on foot. You can go there in 15 minutes from now. And then he saw people with very light skin. And they were slaves, and they told him they were Angli. And he said, no, they were Angeli, and he needs to do f something for them one day. So as a very old man, he had this dream of converting England again. And uh, Augustine arrived there, and, and he really managed to convert one of the local rulers with thousands of people very, very quickly. And Gregory still got that message, and that really made him happy. Um, so then he died in 604, and he's buried just beside the sacristy entrance in St. Peter's. Um, so you, of course, should drop in and say a prayer there for him. Why, why do you like him so much? Um, uh, to, to quote um, uh, Django Fett from uh, Star Wars prequels, <laughs> I'm just a simple man making my way in the galaxy. Um, so we, we're all like that, all of us. All of us dream of, you know, of doing something great in difficult times. And he is the man. He is the man that proves that one man can make an incredible difference. Because of him, Rome survived those times. Because of him, the poor were fed. Because of him, the church was, was reformed in his time. In an impossible time. In an impossible time. But one man made a huge difference. That's why I like him quite a lot. Uh, he left. Uh, he introduced the title Servus Servorum Dei for the Pope. He's mm -hmm. the first one to mention it. He wrote uh, four books with dialogues. In the second book, you have, um, you have the first biography of, of Benedict um, of Norcia, uh, written by him. He also wrote a brilliant book, which is called um, Histories of Saints and Devils. What he did was, he's, he was very pragmatic, very practical, very mm -hmm. practical. Not a, be, yeah. not, a, not a romantic. He collected stories of miracle from Italy, but only stories that either a friend of his had directly experienced or had been told by somebody else whom he trusted. Wow. And this is a, a collection of things that are absolutely incredible to read, mostly resurrected monks and, 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 and miracles of healing and apparitions of devils. Um, but yes, so that's a wonderful thing to read. He was a very, he was a very humble man. One of his wisest things that he did. I read about this long before I began to know the, the, uh, the character of Pope, of Pope Gregory the Great was, I read a book about Wales and, uh, and the, the earliest churches in Wales from the 
6th, 7th century, 8th century, the mission of Wales. Mm -hmm. And they never destroyed sacred places, but they built their chapels within and used sacred places. And I found out that Gregory Gray wrote, and, and Bede, Bede writes this in his history of the English Isles, he wrote a... Um, a uh, motto proprio, no something, one of his letters, saying mm -hmm. that uh, if you find a place used in, used for prayer, don't destroy it, use it, because people have prayed there, and teach them what really they have looked for there. And that's, I think, incredibly wise. That's mm -hmm. incredibly wise. And that's why many churches that are, chapels that are built in Wales, for instance, within a circle With a, with, a, with a cemetery that is circular around are probably within an old sacred present, etc., mm -hmm. etc. Et yeah. So that's why, and um, coming back to, um, to the church, San Andrea Gregorio, um, the special thing about this, not just standing in front of it, but if you ever go there, make sure it's open. Call there ahead of time because it's very often closed. You go in and you have, um, you have a, a court before you get into the church that sort of echoes the court that was there in an old Roman house. It's quite impressive. And then you go in and you find two things that are really blow you away. One of them is one of his two bishop's chairs made of stone on which he sat. And the most impressive thing is um, if you go to the front and in the right side chapel and you go through a, a tiny door and that's his cell. That's his original cell wow. for which he longed. Mm -hmm. It's tiny. It's tiny. You can kneel in there and pray. And uh, sometimes when I think that uh, the church is in trouble and things are difficult and things sort of, um, you know, as it happens, I go in there and I pray to Gregory the Great um, because he was Pope in, in difficult and in complex times. And he dealt in a very wise and intelligent way with the world, with, with faith, with his faithful, with his structure. And uh, yes, I think he can be uh, a, a great example for all of us. How, how would uh, the life of a Christian should always be balanced between the two extremes that Gregory the Great incorporated? There was this deep desire to retrieve himself from the world, to go into his cell, to read books and pray and pray and pray, and never come out again. And um, that's, that's one instinct. Then there is the other one that says you have to interact with the world. You have to be there. You cannot just pray. You have to care for the, for the, for the wounded, the sick, and the ill. Uh, I think both of it is important and both of it should shape us. This desire to be a man of prayer and the desire to be a man of action and to be there for the, for the poorest of the poor. And if um, political history is complicated, if there are wars, if there are famines, if there are catastrophes, then be there, stand your man, and, uh, and, and help, help your city, help your country. And that's what he did in a very impressive way. Mm. And also be humble and obey the Pope, because <laughs> uh, he went for six years on orders of the Pope to a place that he hated, deeply hated. And, uh, and he obeyed, but then he went back. And then finally, finally, he could be monk again, but no. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> right. I was, yeah, I always like to tie these, um, tie these episodes back because, you know, we, we can complain about the state of the world. And I know that we were all placed here by God specifically. So we lived through this time and who knows why. But at the same time, we live a pretty pampered lifestyle, especially compared to somebody like Gregory, who, like you said, for the first 
whatever, 20 years of his life practically, watched his city be destroyed, literally. Um, so what would, I mean, what would you kind of say to that to kind of help people living now, to, to put that into context and to maybe be grateful for what we have, but then to, I don't know, you know, there's there's other things that Gregory could never have dreamed of having go through or having uh, gone through that we actually have to deal with in terms of um, hardship, I guess, today, maybe. Yes. Um, in a way, I suppose this is the bottom line in in many of your um, of your of your shows. Uh, the church and the papacy have gone through much harder times than we have today. We're living in a difficult time because of a pandemic, and we're living in a difficult time because we we believe that there is um, there is a crisis of faith, especially in Europe, not so much in other continents. Um, but we have no idea how bad it can be. And, uh, and in that craziness of those 14 years of Gregory the Great, he managed to become a saint of the church. And I, I think this should be, if he was able to do that with the Langobards at the door, with <laughs> pestilence and, 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 and destruction, he could become a saint. And with a sense of humor, with a great writing style, with all of this, um, then you and I today can do the same. I think that would be the message that I would find in his life. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I would agree. I think um, we did an episode on Gregory the Great. It was one of the very first ones, if memory serves. And I think the name of that is uh, The Pope Who Founded Western Civilization. Do you think that's a fair characterization? Because, I mean, it was all collapsing. Rome was, like you said, gone. All of its former glory was just gone. The fact that, like, I grew up in western Montana, which is ultra-rural United States, right? Uh, And the, the big town near where I grew up was 30,000 people. And it was like a third of the size that it was 100 years before. And to think of to think of that was crazy. I mean, Rome would be, you know, 100 times that. So um, why do you think that is a maybe audacious, but, but ultimately a fair characterization to you? I think it's a very fair characterization because he stood exactly at the point where the last remains of the Roman Empire were gone. Nobody looked after the people anymore. And he was exactly at the at the doorstep of the church taking over as the, the leading force in Italy, in Europe, at least. This was the moment when the last vestiges, 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 I don't even mm-hmm. say that, uh, of the Roman Empire disappeared. Nobody, nobody cared anymore. There was no, there was no structure. There wasn't, and the church had to take over. And the church was him, him with a few deacons, <laughs> with a few friends. Um, you know, uh, if you watch the movie Thirteen Days, um, which is a great movie about the Cuban crisis, at some point. Um, the actor who plays Robert Kennedy, uh, you know, overwhelmed by the danger of nuclear war every day, says, I always imagined that in a situation like this, there would be wise old men who knew what to do. But there's just <laughs> us. <laughs> yes. So, no, no, absolutely. I think this is the moment which was really the, where, where the history changed and Rome disappeared and the, the spiritual Rome began under the church. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. excellent. Well... Um, that's really good. I mean, yeah, we could plumb the depths of, of Gregory the Depths life, or Gregory the Great's life, excuse me, for hours and hours. I'm sure, and, and someday I would love to um, hear the full story and, and see the um, the the view in Rome that you described. But uh, I think that's pretty good. So we with all of these, uh, I don't know how many we've done now with with guests spots on the podcast. We always like to do a, a patron only question, a question reserved just for just for our patrons. So um, <laughs> for all of you non patrons. 
uh, we're going to tease this out a little bit and <laughs> let there be a long pause. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But okay, the question for our, our patrons is. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you again for being a guest on the show. So the last thing, of course, when we wrap up uh, is obviously where, where can people find you online? Many people, I'm sure, who listen already already know that you're very popular on Twitter, but um, where can people find you, and is there any, any project you'd like to um, promote to you? Well, uh, first of all, I'm very happy that I managed to squeeze a Star Wars quote, a Star Wars quote into this show. Um, but it came naturally. I didn't plan that. It did, yeah. Um, right. uh, you find me on Twitter. My name is Edward Habsburg. Uh, I'm the Hungarian ambassador. I usually tweet about faith, family topics, movies I watch, and of course, Hungary, Hungarian politics, Hungarian faith topics, the Eucharistic Congress, which is going to be in September, and uh, all of that. I've written a little book. I think you might enjoy it if you have small children. It's called Dubby the Double-Headed Eagle. It's a cute little story, a coming-of-age story of a little double-headed eagle, which is the, the crest of the Habsburgs, the coat of arms. Oh. <laughs> and uh, and he, he comes out of his egg today and he tries to figure out who he is in modern times. It's a bit like my life because all Habsburgs sort of come <laughs> from a long history and have to figure out how they fit in today. So that would be, yes. And thank you very much. I think this is one of the greatest podcasts with a very clever pun as a title too. And <laughs> uh, congratulations. I've been listening to it for years and I'm very honored to be on it now. Great. Well, praise God. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful uh, for your kind words and, and hopefully continue to listen. And, and hopefully people enjoy this. I, I don't know how they wouldn't be able to. Um, and especially because, right, his uh, under a month now to his feast day, September 3rd. So, um, yes. Well, excellent. Thank you again for being on the show, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Well, what a fantastic episode. If you're enjoying the Popecast and you haven't already, please be sure to leave us a rating and review over at iTunes. It, of course, helps to make sure more folks can find and listen to the show. And regardless, we'd be honored otherwise if you'd share it with a friend or a family member. It obviously helps to spread the word about the show, but Lord knows more people than ever could use a little bit of historical perspective these days. Also, a thank you again to all of our patrons, especially those of you who are the newest patrons, Brennan and Hegau. Which, uh, without you guys, we could do none of this. If you'd like to support the Popecast too, helping us cover our production costs and also getting some great Popecast swag in the process, depending upon your Patreon tier, be sure to check us out at patreon.com slash thepopecast. That's patreon.com slash thepopecast. And as we head out today, let us, of course, ask for the prayers of St. Gregory the Great. And remember... These are strange times we live in, but no stranger than in ages past. Until next time.